All right, at this time, Brother Royce is going to come open God's Word and share with us. I told you when I introduced him the very first time that it had been six years since he had been here. Uh, he and a teammate beat me and a teammate in golf today. And I looked Brother Royce in the eyes and shook his hand and said, it's no wonder they waited six years to bring you back. I said, if, if you're going to do me like this. And so uh, uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, get to know Royce uh, over this last week. I know why many of you guys and gals are so fond of him. Uh, he's a first-class individual, and I look forward, brother, to hearing what uh, you're going to share with us from God's Word today. So if, if you would come, we'd love to hear what the Lord's laid on your heart. Thank you, brother. not going to dodge you. Amen. <laughs> And shook hands. That shows camaraderie. Thank you, dear brother. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate your ministry here, you and Jesse, and uh, the years that God has given you here to serve as pastor and first lady. And I pray that God will bless this church under your ministry and that uh, uh, you do great things for the Lord. I'm always thinking that our best days ought to be ahead of us. Amen. We're getting closer and closer to the coming of the Lord for His church again. And uh, that ought to motivate us to do all that we can for the cause of Christ. And I want to thank these guys for letting me play with them again. I really appreciate that. I don't get a chance to play with anybody very often. Uh, I play some, play guitar, and sometimes sing and lead the congregation in singing. And I know what Ken's thinking. He wants to do I'm Going to Live Forever. That's that's his favorite song, you know. And whenever I'm with him, I have to do that song. But... Uh, I hardly ever get a chance to play with somebody, so thank you so much, and thank you, Betsy, for uh, arranging that as well as the rest of the music for this week. She picked out the music, actually, you know, so we know we're going to be uh, on target when she picks out the music for us. We have one other thing planned that never did come to fruition. Linda was supposed to stand up tonight and do doo-wop, doo-wop in the background while we were singing, and doo-wop, doo-wop, you know. She's my baby, doo-wop, doo-wop, it don't mean maybe, but I guess you just couldn't find a place to fit it in or whatever. But you could have done it where, where Andy went boom, boom, boom. That could have, it would have worked right there, I think. So, <laughs> And uh, I hope that you've had a good day today. Now, regarding that golf game, uh, I just want you to know we may have won, but it wasn't because of anything I did, that's for sure. Um, I, I play about once or twice a year, and Andy really had his, he had his shoulders Loaded today, and he carried the, he carried the thing. I think I made one putt the whole day long, and that. But we had a good time uh, fellowshipping together, and they all behaved themselves. I know you would like to know that. that uh, they're the same out there on the golf course as they are when they're in the church house, and that's an important thing, isn't it? When you're living for the Lord, to be the same everywhere people see you. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter number three, if you would please. Revelation in chapter number 3, and I'm going to read one of the letters, the last letter actually, that is uh, given to John on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, Jesus gives him this letter to take to the church at uh, Laodicea. You know that in chapter number 1, uh, John has a vision of the Lord seated high upon the throne, the angels flying about and uh, crying, holy, 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 like we sang about a little while ago, and uh, he had a vision of the Lord on the throne, and then shortly after that, uh, he was given these seven letters to uh, give to the seven literal churches that existed in that day, the churches of Asia. And uh, we're not saying those were the only seven churches, but uh, they're the seven churches that are addressed. And uh, when you go through those, I mean, everyone has a particular message. Some Bible scholars believe that each one of these uh, churches represents a different stage in the life of the uh, New Testament church from the from uh, the time of Pentecost forward. I'm not sure whether I buy into all of that or not, but you do have a good array of churches and what goes on in churches. And, uh, for instance, that first church is the church at Ephesus, and that's the loveless church. You've left your first love. When you come to the second church, that's the church at Smyrna, which was a persecuted church. One of the reasons that I do not hold to this being a historical uh, record of church ages is because we've always had persecuted churches. And as a matter of fact, right now, there are more people dying for their faith around the world than at any other time since Christ rose from the dead. And so then you come to Pergamos, and Pergamos was a compromising church. And I think probably there's been compromising churches in all ages, but certainly in the in the late 200s and the early 300s, there were churches that compromised, and those 
faiths, uh, they exist even to this day. Some would say that they are Christian churches, but I would beg to differ uh, with them on that. Then there's the church at Thyatira, and the church at Thyatira was a corrupt church. And uh, we have corrupt churches today in, uh, in America and around the world. And uh, they're teaching false doctrines, and, and the health, wealth, and prosperity is among those, and probably the most prevalent today with a doctrine that's just simply uh, not so. And they're teaching a, a, a doctrine that, uh, that will lead you away from God instead of toward Him. And then there's the church at Sardis, and that church at Sardis was a dead church. And boy, there's dead churches everywhere, and I guess there always has been, uh, uh, maybe within one or two hundred years after Christ uh, rose from the dead, they weren't so dead. But after then, you know, I mean, churches have been dead in a lot of different places around the world. And I heard about one fellow said he preached a revival in the church, and the church was so dead that... Uh, that in the midst of the worship service, that someone had a heart attack on the back row and actually died, passed on the back row. And they called the rescue squad, and they came in and took out four different people before they got the right one. Now, that's a dead church right there, buddy, let me tell you. That's a dead church. I don't think I need to explain what I mean by that. Then there's the church at Philadelphia, and of course, that's the church of brotherly love. We have a Philadelphia of our own in the United States of America, and it's a church, and it's a city of love too. But it's not the uh, it's not the brotherly love that the Bible talks about. It has its own definition. Uh, but Philadelphia in those days was a faithful church. And uh, then, of course, uh, when you come to Laodicea, what we're talking about tonight is what we do not want to be, and that is the church of Laodicea. You remember that the church at Laodicea is a lukewarm church. It's a church that uh, is neither hot nor cold. Actually, um, the word Laodicea means ruled by the people. And uh, you can uh, have a church that's lukewarm and lackadaisical when it's ruled by the people. And there was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and that, that actually meant that uh, it was ruled by the clergy over the laity. And uh, you find record of that in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 6, and then in uh, to the, the church at Pergamos uh, in chapter number 2 and verse number 15. So uh, in those two letters, that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is mentioned in the letter to the Ephesians and to the, to the letter, uh, in the letter to the church at Pergamos. And there are those, of course, today who believe that the church is an ecclesiastical hierarchy, that uh, that the uh, uh, pastor is the one that rules and reigns over the church. There are those that believe that the church is a democratic diaconate, that the church is supposed to be run by the laity. And we need to realize tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that a church that is ruled by the clergy is in trouble. And any church that is ruled by the people is also in trouble but a church that can say we have prayed about this and we have sought God's face and we believe that God's will in this matter is thus and so. When a church can say that, then that's a church that's pleasing in the sight of God. Actually, in the congregation, there's supposed to be a cooperation between laity and with clergy. As a matter of fact, when you're reading uh, the New Testament, you'll have a hard time uh, finding those two words used in the Bible. It's really a cooperation of those that God has set as elders or leaders over the congregation, cooperating with the people who uh, really are using their gifts under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit of God to bring glory to Him and what we do for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we can say that we have prayed about this thing together and we have come to this consensus, both laity and clergy, and this is what God's will is. Anyone who stands up and says, well, let me tell you what I think. Well, let me ask you a question tonight. What does it matter what you think? The question of the matter is, is what does God's Word say? We said the other night that God's Word is the final authority on any given subject in the Baptist church. And it's supposed to be that way in any Christian church. So it doesn't matter what I think. When I pastored a church, I cooperated with the leadership in that church, and, and they cooperated with me. As a matter of fact, in the last church that I pastored, I was there for seven years, and I was gone 25 Sunday nights out of the year. I was preaching an average of 25 revivals a year. That 
that was the agreement when I went, that I would stay in evangelism and that I, you know, and that the deacons would pick up the mantle and, and do what needed to be done. And I'm telling you, for 25 weeks out of the year, I was going at least four, sometimes five, and sometimes six days. You have to cooperate if you're going to operate a ministry in that fashion. And I thank God that uh, I had good deacons in those days, and we worked together side by side, and I would do that whole thing over again. Every now and then, some well-meaning brother or sister, they'll stand and say, well, I'll tell you what I think. But it really doesn't matter what you think. What God's Word says is the final authority on everything. And so a clergy-ruled church really leads to lukewarmness and to a lackadaisical attitude. And a people-ruled church, it leads to that same thing, a lukewarm church, a lackadaisical church. And only a God-governed church will be red-hot and on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, will have an evangelistic fervor that sees new people coming into the body of Christ. And that's, after all, what we uh, really desire. The Lord wants His church to grow, not just in depth, in spirit, but to grow in number as well. As a matter of fact, uh, in the early church, they did not just add to the church, but they multiplied in those days. And we need some more days like that. So now let's let's read the letter itself in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and verses 14 through verse number 20. As a matter of fact, some people place verse 20 with the next paragraph, but I believe it belongs right where I'm putting it tonight. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 14. If you have your place, say amen. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesad that thou might see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. If you believe in underlining in your Bible, that's a wonderful place for you to underline right there. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching, to the hearing, to the application of the Word of God. Father, we pray that tonight you would send uh, the Holy Spirit uh, to bring conviction, to bring comfort, to bring consolation, to teach us. You are our great teacher. We pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words uh, into the heart and onto the page through John uh, almost 2,000 years ago, may that same Holy Spirit tonight uh, make these words come alive. Illuminate the truth of this, Lord. Guard our mind, guard our hearts, guard our words. And we pray uh, tonight that uh, you would speak to the heart of every individual that's in this place the preacher included, Lord. I lay myself on the altar before you. I ask you, Lord, to cleanse me of anything that would keep me from being uh, a, a tool in your hands tonight. And I pray that when we leave from this place that we'll be honestly able to say that we have heard from the Lord tonight and I have obeyed Him to the best of my ability. We pray these things and we ask them in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. What I'd like to do tonight is uh, something we haven't done any night this week. I'd like to take you to an art gallery. I'd like for us just to walk through an art gallery and look at this passage of Scripture and just see uh, what the Bible has to say to us in this paragraph on the church of Laodicea. And so now as we're walking in the front door and the very first uh, portrait that we see on the wall, I'd like for you to see a portrait of the writer himself. He describes himself three different ways. These are not words that come from John the Apostle, though he's the last living apostle and a great man of God, uh, had pastored at Ephesus and, and uh, had a wonderful ministry there. 
Uh, it's not John who has these words. It's the Lord Jesus that gives the message to John, and John writes it down. That's what he told him to do. Write down these letters for the seven churches of Asia. There he was on the Isle of Patmos, and he saw the Lord on the, uh, he saw the Lord and that vision of the Lord on the Lord's day. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord spoke to him and gave him that vision and gave him these words to write down. And, uh, you remember that the Bible says that, uh, and there was no more sea. Can you imagine he's on the Isle of Patmos and on a very, very clear day, just frankly, you could see the, the main, uh, the mainland over there, just a very, very faint, uh, image of the mainland where Ephesus was, where he had pastored all of those years. Uh, and to think that uh, the people that he loved so much and that he pastored all those years, and now because he's been faithful to preach the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, he's exiled out there. And I'm, I'm, I mean, many days I believe he kind of looked across that sea and longed to be with all of his friends that loved the Lord that he had served beside all those years. A lot of people that had been saved under his ministry. And and uh, how he longed to be there with them. He mentions in this vision that there is no more sea. There'll be no more separation. One of these days we'll all be gathered together. No more sickness, no more pain, and no more separation. And he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. The portrait of the writer, he describes himself, first of all, as the Amen. In verse number 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. If your Bible is worth five cents, then Amen is capitalized right there. Because it's not just a word of exclamation of praise, but it stands for the Lord Jesus himself. Thus saith the Amen, the truth, uh, the absolute truth. He describes himself that way. And you know, we ought to get into the habit of, of saying that word. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And it's good for people to say amen too, by the way. In, uh, in churches, you know, there used to be an amen corner and usually three or four old deacons would sit in that corner and whenever the preacher said something that was absolutely on target, particularly if the preacher said it with emphasis, they'd say, Amen! Amen! Well, Jesus is the Amen. He is not only truth, but He is the absolute truth. These words come from Him who is truth. It is fixed, it is firm, it is unchangeable that He always has been truth and always will be truth. And so, uh, in verse, uh, in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians in chapter number 1, this is what the scripture says under the writing of the apostle Paul. For all the promises of God in Him, that is in Christ, are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. He is the amen, the truth, the absolute truth. As a matter of fact, Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He is the beginning of truth and he is the end of truth. In the inception of truth and the fulfillment of truth, the the fruition of truth. He is truth from beginning to end, the initiation of truth and the culmination of truth. Not just truth, but absolute truth. That's the reason that we say that the Word of God is the final authority on every subject for the Baptist church and for the child of God. Because it does not contain truth, but it is truth. And uh, there are a lot lot of people who are more liberal-minded, moderate-minded than you and I are tonight, who would agree that the Bible contains truth, but they would not say necessarily that the Bible is truth from the beginning to the end. But I'm just telling you that uh, He is truth, and the Word of God is truth, and what it says can be trusted, it can be tested, it is the absolute truth. In other words, Jesus is God's yes, He is God's amen. Jesus is God's absolute assurance. When we follow after Him, that we're walking in the right path. He describes Himself as the amen. And then He describes Himself in this portrait of the writer as the faithful and true witness. It has already been said in Revelation chapter 1, in verse number 5, these words, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the Lord Jesus Himself. And now He describes Himself as the faithful and the true witness. It's pictured in John's vision as a the faithful witness. Not a faithful witness, but the faithful witness. 
I think that he's called the faithful witness because there's never been anyone else who was the faithful witness. You would have to be the faithful witness all the time if you were going to be the faithful witness. But I cannot say that of myself, that I'm always the the perfect picture of who Jesus is and what God desires. And I would hope tonight that you would agree with that and say, that's true in my life too, Brother Royce. I, I, I don't always reflect who God is. But you see, Jesus is the perfect image of God the Father. And so when you see Jesus, you have seen the Father. You remember that passage of Scripture, don't you? I mean, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may all be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And then Philip speaks up, you know, and finally he says, well, just show us the Father. Show us the Father, and that sufficeth us. In other words, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And he said, Philip, have I been so long with me? Have I been so long with you, and you still do not understand? When you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he is the perfect witness. He is the true witness. He is the faithful witness of who God the Father is. And, of course, you and I are just striving to do that. We're trying to look more like Jesus every day that we live. This stands, of course, in great contrast to the Laodicean church. And it stands in great contrast to the church today. One of the greatest hindrances we have of seeing people evangelized in our community is that they know some of the people down at the church. And they see how people who say that they're saved, how they actually live the other six days of the week. And so, you know, we want to be like Jesus in every way and not like the Laodicean church. Uh, he said, you think you really are somebody, but I'm telling you, you are poor and you're miserable and you're blind and you're anything but a faithful witness of who God is in your life. So the portrait of the writer in this very first uh, portrait, when we see in the Laodicean Art Gallery, it says that he is the Amen, he is the faithful and true witness. And then he describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God. He is the beginning of the creation of God. That's probably one of the most... Uh, unfortunate translations of the King James Version of the Bible. This uh, passage of Scripture has been used to say uh, that uh, God the Father created Jesus Christ, that He was actually a creation of God the Father. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, Jesus has always been. Now, it's not always been man, but He's always been God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, He has always been God. He's not always been man. He's only been man for 2,000 years, but He's always been God. And that translation that He's the beginning of the creation of God, they interpret that sometimes as saying, that, that Jesus is a creation of God, when in fact, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and always has been and always will be God. Never has been a time when He wasn't, never will be a time when He won't be. He always has been and always will be God. He is the beginning of the creation of God, but in this sense, He is the Creator. The Bible says that this world came into existence by the very word being spoken, let there be light, and boom, there was light just like that. You see, I believe in the Big Bang Theory, don't you? Yeah, God said, let there be light, and bang, there it was, just like that. He, he spoke it all into existence by His very word. As a matter of fact, our uh, Romans says it this way in Romans chapter 11 and verse number 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to be glory. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, Paul had it right when he wrote those words in Romans, did he not? And John 1 and 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in chapter 1, in verse number 17, all things were created by Him and for Him. Yes, He is the beginning of the creation of God. That is, He was the one who began the creation of this world in the way that you and I know it today. 
Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he, he did all, all of this that we see here in six days. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like when he's been working on that for 2,000 years? I mean, that's enough to make an Episcopalian say amen. Don't you think so? What heaven is going to be like one of these days. I mean, he's been working on it for 2,000 years. And one of these days, he's going to call his church up and, uh, and uh, we'll be with the Lord uh, forever there uh, in the sky, wherever heaven is. Heaven is where Jesus is. And uh, where Jesus is, that's where heaven is. And I'm looking forward to going one of these days. Jesus was not created, but has existed from eternity past to eternity future. Rather, the Word of God, who is eternal, became flesh as the revelation of God to man. And He's the same Word, this same Jesus who created everything that is. Now, that's a pretty good picture of the words that uh, this letter to the Laodicean churches, he said, let me tell you, uh, just tell them this is who's writing the letter. The Amen. The faithful and true witness and the beginning of the creation of God. Walking through the Laodicean Art Gallery, now we come to a picture of the church. And uh, when we come to the picture of a church, boy, what a sordid picture that is, as a matter of fact. And we're not nearly all that we think we are. Amen. And uh, Jesus said that to uh, John. You write this down about the Laodicean church. They won't hardly believe what I have to say, but it's the absolute truth. And of course, he's using metaphorical language here regarding their lack of a of a fresh walk with the Lord. And the, he uses the, 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 the imagery of water. He said, you're neither cold nor hot. And that this has been interpreted in a lot of different ways, but when you think about uh, the cities and and all of the uh, the area in which this was uh, uh, written, they knew exactly what uh, Jesus was talking about. You see, there are two cities uh, that are nearby Laodicea, and uh, one of those is Colossae, and Colossae has uh, this uh, fresh water. Uh, an artesian well of fresh water that's bubbling up all the time. Cool water. Fresh water. And then there is the city of Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, they had anything but. They had no fresh water supply of their own. There was no natural water supply for Hierapolis. And so what they did was, they had an aqueduct that ran from the Mediterranean Sea and would come to where they were. Now, it was fresh water, of course, when it came out of the Mediterranean Sea. But by the time it goes through that aqueduct and the things open up on the top, you know, and then all the birds are flying by and, and that sun is baking down and that what was a very fresh and cool uh, water, it sits in that aqueduct as it comes by there. And uh, the people at Laodicea knew exactly what uh, Jesus was saying when he said, You are neither cold nor hot. You are not refreshing to anyone. And you're not hot either. You know, they had uh, they had these um, hot springs there in Hierapolis. And people who had uh, ailments like, like you know something about tonight. Many of you know about uh, the arthritis and the, the rheumatism and, uh, and, uh, and the gout and everything else. And if I, anybody over 40 just about knows something about one of those, sometimes you know something about all three of those. And, and people came from all over the world to these hot springs and and whenever they came to these hot springs, they would get down that water. And the natural minerals that are within that, it would just bring uh, comfort. The warm water and the minerals would bring, uh, as a matter of fact, as I'm thinking about it right now, I wouldn't mind going to Hierapolis myself. And, and just go down and sit down in one of those hot bubbling baths, you know, and see... Every morning when I wake up, uh, all the good characteristics my mother has, she gave me her arthritis. Of all the things she could have given me, she gives me arthritis. And the very first thing that I do in the morning when I get out of the bed is I go in and I turn that faucet on on hot. And I wait for that thing to get hot. And then I put my hands up under it. And for about a minute or two minutes, I'll just sit there and rub my hands and try to get them started up, Jonathan, so I can pick when you when I come here that night with you. I had to get those hands started in the morning. I wouldn't mind getting one of those. And you know what Jesus said? Listen, you're not cool and you're not refreshing to anybody. And you don't have any healing elements. You don't bring any soothing. Folks, I'm telling you, I said to you the other night that Dr. Robert G. Lee used to say that on every pew there's a broken heart. And I'm telling you, a church, we're supposed to be ministering one to another, not inflicting pain upon one another, but bring healing one to another. 
When you find a brother who's in a fault, then you go to him. You try to bring him back into the fold. You try to reason with him about what the Word of God says and be an agent of healing. Now, I don't know about you, but I like for people to refresh me every now and then. Do you ever get discouraged? Most Baptist pastors resign every Monday morning after they've preached on Sunday. Nothing's happened all day long, you know, and they've had two or three meetings and, and, uh, they go home frustrated and can't have sleep. And the next morning they'll take out a pen and a piece of paper and they start writing out their own resignation. It's about time somebody saddled out beside someone who is hurting and someone who is discouraged. I'm not talking about just a pastor. I'm talking about one another. Find someone who is discouraged. Find someone who is hurting. And sit down with them and refresh them with your presence. You know, Barnabas was known as the as the son of consolation. Barnabas was always the guy that would lift you up and would encourage you. But I'm telling you, we got too many Doubt and Thomases in the church, and they just don't believe it can't be done, and they got something negative to say about everything. And you know, uh, well, these these people here at Laodicea, you know, you see. They're characterized as an indifferent church. It's not that they would, they would, it's not that they would deny any great doctrine of the faith. They wouldn't deny the virgin birth of Jesus or his sinless life or his atoning death. They would never deny the resurrection of Jesus and, you know, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the, and the fact that he's coming. They would never deny any of that. They would just simply say, even though these things are true, they really have no relevance for today. That's the way church members are now. They believe the cardinal doctrines of the faith, but they say, well, what difference does that make? How does that inform my life tonight? So though these things are true, they have no relevance, they have no meaning, they have no no value for contemporary Christianity. But I'm just telling you the truth of God's Word always has ramifications for the child of God in this age in which we live. It's a picture that portrays the church as an indifferent church. Somebody asked uh, on the streets of Chicago one time, they were doing a little spiritual survey, and they said, well, what do you think is wrong with the Christian church in America? And the guy said, I don't care, and I don't know. He said, you got both of them right. Ignorance and indifference. I don't know, and I don't care. That's the way most Christians are today. Well, if these cardinal doctrines are true, how does that inform my life? Does that tell me how I'm supposed to live? It most certainly ought to. They're characterized as an indifferent church. And they're characterized as an immature church. By the way, verses 15 and 16 is where you see that. In verse 15 and 16, I know thy words that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm... I neither cold nor hot. I will spew thee out of my mouth. You know, when I was in Bible college and when I went on seminary, they taught us in those classes that when you see words that are repeated within the text, that that's really what you should focus on. That's what that, that passage is about, what those sentences are about, those verses are about. Did you notice that he used cold nor hot three different times? Three different times in two different verses. He said, I know thy works, verse 18, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now I want you to look at my beady brown eyes. Now I want you to hear what I've got to say. It's been a bad day in church when God says, you make me sick. You're not cooling, you're not refreshing, you're not helping anybody along. You're not healing, you're not helping anyone through their hard times. You're not bringing any soothing to their life. You're just lukewarm, you're just laying there, you're just, you're insipid. You are absolutely, of no, you make me sick. He said, I will spew you out of my mouth. I tell you, I believe God's got a lot of churches in America tonight that are lukewarm churches. And we don't want to be a lukewarm church. Amen. (laughs) We want to be cool and refreshing in our Sunday school classes. Get the Word of God. I mean, that's what gives the refreshing. That's what gives the help and the hope. In the pulpit, you preach the Word of God. When you preach the Word of God, that brings help to folks. It encourages them. It heals them. You know, preachers, you know, sometimes we have our congregations and they think we ought to get on the 
the uh, the issues of the day, you know, the contemporary issues, the things that are going on in the news and all the rest. And I guess there's no uh, harm in making a, a, a slight glance or mention of that every now and then. But the truth of the matter is, is that regardless of how bad things are in the world, there's only one help, and that's the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the answer. You say to what question? You go ahead and ask it. Ask any question you want to. He's the answer. He is who we need, and the Word of God is where we learn all about Him. This immature church is a is an ignorant church. They they know all of these cardinal doctrines, but they don't know how to take those doctrines and apply them in their life so that they can live for Jesus and be refreshing and be an agent of healing uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not cold. You're not hot. You just make me sick. You're all lukewarm. I don't know about you, but when I drink coffee, and that's seldom. I'm not really a coffee drinker, but when I drink coffee, I want it hot. And when I drink my diet sundrop, I want it cold, cold, not just lukewarm. I mean, I want it cold or hot. But there's nothing worse, I don't think, than trying to drink a cup of coffee and it's gotten room temperature. Anybody in here like room temperature coffee? Anybody at all? I don't see a one. My my, my father-in-law used to drink his, his coffee black. No sugar, no cream, and so hot, it would burn the roof of your mouth. That's the reason he had false teeth. That way he didn't have to worry about that. Everybody wants their coffee hot. And one of the hardest things about going overseas and preaching is they don't have ice. You can't get a cold drink of anything over there. I mean, they just don't use ice for anything, you know. And man, I can't hardly wait to get off the airplane to Raleigh, Durham and stop right there at that first little store from parking lot number three so I can get me a cold cup of ice and drinking that thing. That's the way we want it. And that's the way God wants it. He wants us to be refreshing. He wants us to be healing. He wants us to minister to those that are within the body. And yes, and once we minister to one another, and by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another, once we're doing that, then we can minister to folks on the outside. But as long as they look on the inside and they see folks that are just bickering and fighting with one another, do you honestly think that they want anything that you and I have if all it does is cause us to bicker and be at one another's heels all the time? Now let's come together in healing and then go out in Jesus' name and refresh folks and bring healing to them. And then uh, that church at Laodicea is characterized not only as an indifferent church and an immature church, but it's characterized as a church with an inflated opinion of herself. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of churches like that in America. Uh, you know, especially, you know, the, the, the county seat churches, you know, a lot of times the big churches, you know, they really think that they are somebody. They don't say God in the pulpit, they say God like that, you know. And they have a whole different language from everyone else. They really think they are somebody. It's a self-deception par excellence. That's what it is. Jesus said, Yo, you really think you are something. He began to enumerate what they were saying about themselves. You say that you're rich. You say that you're increased with goods, that you have no need. I mean, you are somebody. In your own eyes, you really are somebody. If we're not careful as believers, we'll tell people all about our church. We'll tell them all about our pastor. We'll tell them all about our Sunday school class. Do you not understand that the gospel message is about Jesus? The gospel message is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I want to be a part of a good church. I want to be a part of a great church. I want to have a great pastor. I really do. I want to have a good Sunday school class that I go to. And I do. But I'm just telling you, it's not about the class, and it's not about the church, and it's not about the pastor. It's all about Jesus. And uh, they they were really off target at this point. They had an inflated opinion of themselves. and, And, you know, they said that they were rich. And in one sense, they were. They were very, very rich. When Alexander the Great, that empire was divided into the four uh, sections, the Seleucid kings, they, they took over this area where we're talking about tonight in Syria and in Palestine. They offered free citizenship to any of the Jews that would come and bring their commerce, that would come and bring their banking skills, that would bring their trade. And, uh, you know, uh, that's a lot like that today. People all over the world want Jews to come because Jews are enterprising and, and, uh, and you know, and they're usually well-to-do. And, and the Roman Empire offered 
them free Roman citizenship. You didn't get that easily, but you were offered free Roman citizenship if you would come and bring your wealth and bring your commerce and your banking in that area. And my te- my friends, whenever they said that you say that you're rich, they were telling the truth. Monetarily, they were rich, no doubt about it. In Laodicea, they had a breed of sheep that was found nowhere else in the world. A breed of sheep. That was found nowhere. He said, well, what in the world? Uh, because this sheep was a black sheep. That's why. And they would take that wool and they would weave these beautiful outer garments, you know. And, uh, and, the, and the women all wanted that beautiful, expensive, exclusive outer garment that came from the wool that came from only one place in Laodicea. It's kind of like I was at First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida one time for a conference. I went there to, to uh, sit in under some guys in a pastor's school that they had there. And it was hot as blue blazes. I mean, it was hot. And on that Sunday morning, we were there over a weekend for the worship service, and this woman came in. And when she came in, she had on a hat, and the hat was this wide. I'm telling you, no, no joke tonight. I mean, it's a, it started out, and it came out this side. And I think it had fruit. It had pears and apples and bananas. And, and it was a big old wide hat. And she had on her mink stole. In the hottest weather you ever saw in your life. I mean, it never gets under 85 degrees in Florida, you know. And, and, and there she comes in with that big old hat on, you know. And that mink stole on. And I thought, yes, ma'am, you are the queen bee at First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. There she was with that expensive outer garment on. She was somebody. That's the way they were in Laodicea. You say that you're rich and increased with goods. You've got all this money all around you. All of this enterprising stuff. And and uh, and you got all these... Uh, these outer garments made from a breed of sheep only found in that one place, that beautiful black glossy outer garment is superior to anything else in the world. Not only did they have them, but uh, the women from all these other cities and countries around, they wanted to have one of those beautiful outer garments as well. And they had an ISAV that was made right there in that area, right there in Laodicea. Uh, I don't know whether I can pronounce this word or not. I wrote it down. If I can't pronounce it, then I'll just spell it to you. How about that? But it's, it's a traumatoria. T-R-I-A-M-A-T-A-R-I-A. And that's the ISAB that was found there. Anybody who had something wrong with their eyes, guess where they had to go in order to receive their treatment? Man, they came from everywhere. Because they had an eye salve that you could put in your eyes. And they said, we're rich and increased with goods. We've got all these things going for us. And materially speaking, they really did have it going for themselves. You know, that's the way some churches are today. I was in a church not uh, too many years ago that they had a benevolence situation to arise in their church. The pastor told me that it would be no problem. They had $30,000 in uh, in the benevolence fund. $30,000, a one-line item in the budget for benevolence alone. There's some churches that take pride in that kind of thing. Now they save up their money. I mean, uh, may I clue you in on something at this point? God never has intended for the Baptist church to be a savings and loan. The tithes and the offerings that come into the church house are to be used for ministry. We ought to keep a little bit of money back so that when we have a rainy day, we'll have some money. But I'm telling for a church to put all her money in the CDs and buy up property, do this, that, and the other. When I was down in Lumberton on staff at East Lumberton Baptist Church, we had, we had a church in our association that had a tobacco allotment. Some of you don't even know what that is. The church owned a piece of property and owned a tobacco allotment. And the church was raising tobacco and selling it on the market and taking the money and putting it in CDs and putting it in the bank. Now, folks, God never has intended for a church to be a savings and loan. I like what David Jeremiah says. By the way, you may not know this, but David Jeremiah, who's at Shadow Mountain Baptist Church in in California, uh, at one time was with the Calvary Baptist group. But they are now a Southern Baptist church. 
You know, whether you knew that or not, but David Jeremiah is a Southern Baptist preacher, and he said that they operate with an open hands ministry at Shadow Mountain Church. Open hands ministry says, and this is the way he describes it, that we believe whatever we have in our possession, God is the one who put it there, and we don't close our hands and keep it for ourselves, but we keep our hands open and we use that money to minister to people all around us. And a lot of people come to Christ because of that. It's a, it's a, it's a given fact that when you minister to people's physical needs, you automatically have an open door to speak to their spiritual needs as well. That's what churches need to be like. Yeah, we may be rich and increased in goods, but if we have anything, God's the one who gave it to us. And He gave it to us in order that we might minister to others who are out there in need. You tell me how a church can hoard up thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in the bank account when they have members of their own congregation that uh, they can't hardly pay their gas bill or their light bill. And little widow women who are living on a pension. And they're, uh, you know, having to choose whether or not they're going to take their medication or not. And there sits the church with all that money. And they've been faithful Christians and served the Lord all their life. And now they're not able to come. And uh, if you're not careful, then some charlatan on TV will tell them, if you'll send me your tithe, then I'll send you an anointed prayer handkerchief, you know. And, and rather than us ministering to them, they're ministering to somebody else and sending that money off there somewhere. I'm telling you, churches ought to be benevolent. Churches ought to be generous. They said we are rich and increased with goods, but it was not because they were ministering to anybody. It's just because they wanted everybody to know they were somebody. Yeah, we got all this commerce and we've got all these things going for us. I serve for the whole world. And uh, we've got all these mink stoles to wear when we come to church. Verse 17, you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But I, that is the Lord, say unto you. And buddy, he began to read them their rights. He said, first of all, you're wretched. In the original language, that's not just wretched. It means the wretched one. Church at Laodicea, you are the wretched one. You have those that are wretched, and you are on top of the heap. The wretched one. You say that uh, you are somebody, but I tell you, spiritually, you are the bottom of the barrel. And then I tell you, I tell you, you that you are miserable. You say you have need of nothing, but I tell you spiritually, you are a basket case. That's what I'm saying. And you say that you're rich, but I tell you, you are poor. You are rich materially, but you are spiritually bankrupt. You don't, you don't have, uh, spiritually speaking, two nickels to rub together side by side. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're not helping anybody anywhere. And you think you're somebody because you have this eyesight. I tell you, you are blind. You may have the physical cure for eyesight problems, but I'm telling you, spiritually, you are blind. Just like the Apostle Paul was, you'll remember. Riding on the back of that horse on his way to Damascus to arrest some more Christians. Hauled them before the authorities. And I'm telling you, uh, the Lord struck him blind. He fell off of that horse when he hit the ground. Uh, I'm telling you, he was as physically blind as he was spiritually blind. And he didn't get, he didn't get straightened out either until God said, uh, uh, the Lord said to him, you go down the straight street to Ananias' house and when you get down there, I'll show you what you ought to do. He found out that the Lord had saved him by His grace and had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Man, what a change that is. Amen. He said, you're wretched. You are the wretched one. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. And you are naked. You, you think that, uh, you know, you're covered and, and uh, in luxury you're covered. But really, he said, God sees you just like you are as though you didn't have a rag on your body anywhere. And you do understand tonight that that's true tonight, just like it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus said to John, you write that down in the letter to the church at Laodicea. You tell them that they are naked. He is the omniscient one. He knows everything we do. He knows everything that we think. He knows everything that we say. Psalm 139. He knows all that there is to know about you and all that there is to know about me. 
As a portrait of the writer, he said, I'm the amen, the faithful and the true witness. And he said, I am the, the creation of the, of the world. And then the picture of this church, an indifferent church, an immature church, and a church that had a mighty inflated opinion of herself. And then there's a painting of salvation in verse number 18. Jesus said, if you really want to know what salvation is about, it's not about you. And it's not about your church. It's all about me. He said, by me. Gold tried in the fire. Even at the judgment seat of Christ, the things that we have done for the Lord are going to be categorized that way. Remember, everything that we have done is going to come before the uh, the omniscient eye of the Lord. Everything that you and I have done is going to be cast in one of two clear categories. Gold, silver, and precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble. Gold, things that are valuable, things that are enduring, things that are lasting on the other side. Wood, hay, and stubble, things that will perish just at the strike of a match. We're going to answer for the deeds that we've done in the body one of these days. This painting of salvation, he's saying, it's not about you, it's all about me. He said, my counsel to you is by of me. He said, find your sufficiency in me. Find uh, your reliance in me. Find your pleasure in me. Find your purpose in me. Uh, through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, He meets every need that we have. And the best part about it is, is if you're really following the Lord, He gives you a deep satisfaction. It's not a drudgery to be a Christian, a child of God. But He gives, gives us that deep satisfaction that we're walking with Him. He said, so buy me gold tried in the fire, the fire of the cross, that you might truly be rich. And buy me white raiment, not your black outer garments, but this this white outer garment that is a representation of the holiness that has been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is in Him, not in you, not in me, but in Him. And then by me, I said, that you might have spiritual sight, that you might have discernment. Well, that's one thing that all of us need to grow in some. When we read read the Word of God, ask God to apply that to your heart and life. But then ask the Lord to give you spiritual discernment. I mean, some people will just fall for anything that anybody says, particularly if they're on the radio or they're on the television. Well, they must know what they're talking about because they've got a worldwide television ministry. Unless it's according to the Word of God, it's not so. I pray that God will give us discernment to know the Word of God and to be able to separate the true from the false and live according to the Word. Of God, there's the portrait of the writer, the picture of the church, the painting of salvation. Matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number one, uh, the prince of preachers in the Old Testament, Isaiah wrote, "Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters, and he that hath no money, come and buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk." Without money and without price. In other words, you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. Not saved any other way, just by the gift grace. You can't buy it uh, without money and without price. He said it can be yours. And then next to the last, I know a lot of times you want to hear a preacher say, now lastly, I want to say next to the last in verse number 19, there's a pencil drawing of correction. We're walking right through this uh, art gallery and, and uh, just look at me. I'm almost done. We're walking through this art gallery and there's a pencil drawing of correction. He says in verse number 19, as many as I love. Now I want to be in that number. Amen. As many as I love, I rebuke and hasten. Nobody said you wanted that part, but, uh, those that he loves, he rebukes and he chastens us. I don't know why we think sometimes, I know that some preachers teach this and, and, you know, that if you follow the Lord, that you're always going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be wise. And that group that says you can name it and claim it and then frame it, it's yours, just like that, you know. But uh, I'm just telling you that Jesus had nowhere to be born. And Jesus had nowhere to be buried when he died. And what makes you think you're going to be greater than the Lord Jesus himself? And uh, most of the apostles died a pauper's death. But in verse number 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That is, I correct them. So here's how you and I are supposed to respond to that. Be zealous. Be eager. And repent. You say, oh, Brother Royce, now I knew you were going to come to that word before you got finished with this message tonight. There you go, talking about repenting again. And Brother Royce, I can't think of a thing in the world tonight I need to repent of. 
Well, you just guess at it. You'll get it right the first time. You will. You'll get it right the first time. We know what our sin is. Now, some of you are even looking at me right now like I still don't know what he's talking about. I'm telling you, we know what our sin is. We know what our besetting sin is. And he said, because those that I love, I rebuke and I chasten. He said, be zealous, be eager, therefore, and repent. We must need to repent of something if he says we are to repent. And then finally, we walk out the door and we see a pastel of a patient Savior. I said to you that I added verse 20 in this paragraph. Uh, some put it in the next paragraph, but I think it belongs right here. Because he's still talking to the church. I think maybe Revelation 3.20 is one of the verses that has probably been misinterpreted and misused as, as much as any verse in the Bible. And I'm not against using this verse in evangelism settings. I, I have used it myself in evangelism settings. You know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him. But I'm telling you, in this context, he's not writing to a lost world. This is a picture of a patient Savior. He's standing outside the door of his own church. And just like that famous painting that was painted, Jesus on the outside knocking on the door. And you notice that on that door that there is no doorknob on the outside. The only way that Jesus can come inside is for someone on the inside of the church to open the door and let him. That's exactly what he's talking about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I ask you tonight, is that not a picture of a patient Savior? Now for 2,000 years, once he's been raised from the dead, ascended back to the Father, is waiting on the Baptist churches all across America and across the world to get off this idea that we know how to do it. We're rich and we're increased with goods and we're, we have need of nothing. And, and he said, I've been trying to tell you that you're poor and that you're miserable and you're blind and you're not refreshing anybody and you're not bringing healing to those that are hurting. And you're my church. You're not your church. You are my church. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He's the one who calls the shots. And not until you and I can say together that we have prayed about this matter, we have sought God's face, and we believe that God's will in this matter is so and so and so and so. Not until then are we really being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're inside and we're holding on to the doorknob trying to keep Him from coming in. A lot of people don't want Jesus to be Lord of the church, but I'm telling you one thing, He's going to be Lord of His church sooner or later. And even those who reject His name down here and refuse to come to Christ as Lord and Savior, He's going to be given a name that's above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I don't know about you. If there's a Laodicea church anywhere nearby, I don't want to join it. Amen. And I don't want to be a member of a church that slowly, little by little, little by little, even sometimes by osmosis, becomes a church of Laodicea because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, who is the head of the church. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask tonight if our musicians will come right now and take their place and be ready to lead us in our hymn of invitation. Pastor Bobby's going to come. He'll be available to you to pray with you and counsel with you. Thank God for his leadership. And the altar will be open if you need to come. Uh, you don't have to stop and speak with him or anyone else. You can go straight to the throne of God. And that's who Jesus is. He's our high priest. You talk to God in the name of Jesus Christ. He'll hear anything tonight that you want to confess. He will listen to you, and He will help you through any problem. The Lord Jesus will tonight as you pray. He's a patient Savior, and the Savior's waiting, uh, and He wants you to come tonight to make right anything that's wrong, to uh, 
speak to a brother, to speak to a sister, to make things right. Uh, to come tonight and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've never been born again, you must be born again. This same Jesus who described himself in that wonderful way as the Amen and the faithful and the true witness and, and, uh, and the creator of this world is also the Savior of the world. And he's the only Savior of the world. And he invites you to come tonight. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In church, what about it? What part do you play in the congregation? Are you a part of the congregation that encourages and brings healing? Or are you one of those that's, uh, that's antagonistic and bringing problems and issues to the forefront? We need to do what the Bible says about forgiving one another and forbearing one another and then walking forward arm in arm in the name of Jesus. Jesus is worthy of our praise, and he is worthy of the harmony of the church. How blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity in the church. So, Father, I pray that in these moments you would bring unity in the heart of everyone who's a member of Keshia Baptist Church. I pray, Lord, tonight that you would uh, minister to those that are hurting. I pray for those, Lord, who... Uh, who need to be an agent of healing. They've got a story that they could be telling someone about how the Lord blessed them and helped them and forgave them and healed their body and healed them in their emotions. They've got a story they need to be telling, but they're really not an agent of healing at all. They're just keeping that story to themselves. So, Lord, I pray you would make us your ambassadors tonight, that you would make us your witnesses, that you would make of us faithful followers of Christ. And Lord, we pray tonight if there's someone in this congregation and uh, they're looking for a church home, and maybe this is the first time they've ever come to this church tonight. Or maybe they've been coming for years, and you've been leading them to come and join this church as as the Keshia Baptist Church receives members. I pray that they would come tonight and offer themselves as uh, as members in this church as in the ways that this church receives members. And Lord, you may be calling someone tonight to a particular task. I pray that all of us will be able to say in our heart of hearts tonight when we leave this place, Now, Lord, I I heard you, and now I'm obeying. And we pray it and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan, what shall we sing, brother? 3.30. Only trust him. We're going to stand while we sing. Your pastor's here to receive you. The altar is open. If you can't come and kneel, you can come and sit down on one of these pews. Let's stand while we sing. Remain standing just for a minute. Uh, a lot of you guys came out every night, and uh, boy, it was encouraging to see you out here. It was encouraging to see you uh, worshiping with us and uh, being under the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Brother Royce, thank you for coming each night. Every, every time I go somewhere and do a revival, it's always encouraging when folks come back. And uh, so sometimes by Wednesday night, I'm like, man, you guys are still coming. And so it's always exciting. Uh, brother, we're glad you were here. I want to thank all of you guys again for coming, all of the Sunday school classes that prepared food so that we could fellowship together. We appreciate you deeply. Uh, It was Brother Boyd's Sunday school class and uh, the ladies' Sunday school class that helped fix dinner tonight. We're grateful for that. And uh, before we wrap up with a word of prayer, do you have any parting words for us? Amen. Brother Randy Walston, would you close us out with a revival with a word of prayer?